first step in developing one's own aesthetic intelligence is not to take an art class or to immerse yourself in other people's designs. Aesthetics is a deep knowledge of what feels and looks good to you and how to communicate it to others such that they can work toward your vision. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the weekly Digital Fashion and Art Club with Anara Nazarova and Evelyn Mora. We're so excited to introduce you to today's guest, Pauline Brown, who throughout her career has helped acquire, build, and lead global luxury brands. With 25 years of experience and her perspective as a former chairman of LVMH North America, Pauline turned the art of brand building into a science. Pauline, welcome. Please share with us how you discovered the power of aesthetics and how it creates products and services that delight customers. Thank you very much for having me. I am a bit obsessed at the moment about the aesthetics of vocal and uh, really redefining branding in terms of sound as opposed to just the visual, which is where we've been stuck for a long time as a society. So thank you again for, for the invitation. So this question about how did I stumble upon this new concept that people haven't, at least in my career, been talking about And I would like to say it was an accident because so much in life is. The reality is it wasn't an accident. It was a disconnect between what I was experiencing in the business world and the language that was being used by other peers, fellow business school grads, budding entrepreneurs, the language that they were using to describe what a brand is versus what I felt people were actually experiencing in the form of a brand. And I'm gonna actually take a step back A lot of the language and the frameworks that we use, if they weren't invented in McKinsey brainstorming session, they were invented uh, a generation earlier in a P&G era where there's this definition of a brand. If, If you go back long enough, brand was what you do to cattle, right? You sear the cattle and you do so when you're selling it to a stranger as a seal of insurance. Essentially, it was telling the person who was buying it, who had no trust in who you are, didn't have a relationship. It was maybe many towns away, could even be a few hundred miles away. You were saying, I'm going to put my name on it. And if there's anything wrong with what I'm selling, you know where to find the person. And so it came to represent the brand into cattle and into livestock. And it really became this measure of trust. And so flash forward to the 1970s, 1980s, all of a sudden we're talking about brands in terms of personalities. It's not just about, do I trust that product that it actually works, but do I like what it stands for? Does it make me feel a certain way? And most of the conveyance of a brand through the 70s and 80s into the 90s was in very traditional marketing vehicles. And I mean, TV advertising and to some extent print advertising. That was your marketing opportunity. And you had a sort of secondary opportunity if people actually came in your store, interacted with your product. But the beginning was all about driving awareness and getting people to get familiar with what you're selling. But again, that comes down to trust. Now we've moved into this era where just because I'm familiar with a name doesn't mean I trust it. Just because you told me in the form of a TV or print ad that this is what you represent doesn't mean that that's what it represents to me. The consumer is very much at the forefront of defining what those relationships look like. And so I saw there was such a disconnect between the way business people were thinking about their brands and the way consumers were actually experiencing them. And 
I could say there was more than one disconnect. So aesthetic intelligence doesn't solve for all of that. Most people buy a particular product or a service over its competing propositions, not because it offered a functionality that others don't, but 85 to 90% of why we buy, why we choose one particular product over another has to do with how it makes us feel. And yet, again, going back to the way corporate marketers and even a lot of budding entrepreneurs are thinking about their products, they're very rational, right? They don't really think about the emotional value. They're thinking about cost benefit analysis and what kind of features and functions can I put in that product that will differentiate it. And so there again, a bit of a disconnect. So what is aesthetics? It comes from the Greek word aesthetikos, which is about the perception of the senses. So the word aesthetikos is related to the word anesthesiologist, who you go to when you're having a procedure to numb the senses. And aesthet has heightened sensory awareness and heightened sensory sensitivity, heightened discrimination, and, and a sense of what feels good and what feels bad and why. Yet so few people in business really think in terms of their five human senses. And when I think of the companies that do this best, they are highly sensorial in their approach to what they do. They think about not just how things look, but how they feel. They think about the language that surrounds the products. They think about the ambiance that is a culmination of lots of details of creating a space that creates an experience. And human experience at the end of the day is the big differentiator. If you're really just selling a commodity, it's a race to the bottom. So I captured this way to reconcile what I thought consumers were looking for and what marketers should be delivering in the form of aesthetic value. And aesthetic t intelligence is how you actually as a company or an individual can deliver that value. So fascinating to hear about the role and functionality branding had before it became the modern brand. At the Digital Fashion and Art Club, we're dedicated to the exploration of the evolution of digital products and the impact that these changes are going to have on physical products and business. But regardless of how good the virtual spaces get, we will always have the basic human need to build profound relationships and to belong to a community. And when a brand cannot rely on physical senses, what role does aesthetics play in the digital realm? Aesthetics is important wherever it's experienced. And certainly digital provides elements of aesthetic experience. Going back to my definition of aesthetics, which is around the five senses. How do you lift the senses? How do you tell a story that makes people feel something through the narration and the stimulation of different senses? How does it come together to be cohesive? And by the way, a lot of those stimulations are not consciously registered. So just as a quick aside, when I go to a restaurant and you ask me, well, what did you enjoy? The first thing I might talk about is the food, the menu. And then if you pushed me a little bit harder and said, well, what else was it? I might talk about the design of the place. Maybe I would talk about the music in the background or one or two other elements. I probably wouldn't ever get to something like, well, the design of the acoustics was really good. I could hear my partner when we were sitting down to eat, but I had a sense of energy when I was by the bar. Or the lighting design was really, really good, where it gave me a sense, it was moody, but I could still see the menu. There's so many things that you can do with these invisible design elements that go under leveraged in a lot of businesses, and they're not that expensive to do well. So 
the first point I'll make going back to your question of what can you do in digital? And it's interesting to note that some of the most popular feeds on Instagram are these culinary experiences. And I don't just mean the professional, you know, cooking shows and so forth, but it's even people like my son who seems to have to post a picture of every meal he ever eats. And in a media that doesn't emit any aroma, why is that so popular? And I'm going to come back to what I think digital can do well that stimulates the imagination around these sensorial delights. So the best case study I can offer on digital, on a company that reinvented its entire category is Airbnb. 10 or so years before Airbnb was ever launched, you had another company that was doing exactly what they did, and that was Craigslist. Craigslist rented rooms and houses and apartments to people who were looking for alternatives to staying in a hotel. And if you went to Craigslist, in lieu of going to Airbnb, it was probably because you were looking for the cheapest option or because you really felt you had no option, meaning there were no hotel rooms available. You would not go there for an experience, right? It was a purely utility play. And by the way, between Airbnb and Craigslist, you had Home Away, VRBO. And what was interesting about Airbnb is it wasn't founded by coders. It wasn't founded by serial venture-backed entrepreneurs. It was founded by two guys who were trained at the Rhode Island School of Design. They stumbled into this concept. And what they realized is that it wasn't just about creating a site that delivered exactly what Craigslist was doing, but it was about designing for trust. And in fact, one of the two founders, Joe Gebbia, gave an entire TED talk called Designing for Trust. Because prior to Airbnb, you didn't feel much trust, emotional trust. And how did they design for trust? Well, they were very mindful of the voice, of the tone, of the visuals. They were very specific on the photo criteria that would be required. They didn't own a single property. They were simply a middleman between the renters and the landlords. But what they did was create a framework that offered a completely different aesthetic experience. And all of a sudden, it wasn't just the place you went for the cheaper alternative to a hotel. It was the place you went for a better alternative to a hotel. So the point here is not just to focus on Airbnb. It's to say that there's so much that can be done to make people feel a certain way through your storytelling, through your use of imagery, through your use of iconography, and the more aware you are of the cues that you're offering through digital, as well as through non-digital, the more power you can unleash in your proposition. Wow. Pauline, we've been running this room within our eyes a few months now, but it's the first time I'm taking notes. And it takes a lot for me to take notes. <laughs> um, I'm honored. Pauline, creativity is natural to us and mm -hmm. people usually choose it when they can afford it. Mm -hmm. So what role does aesthetics play in the way brands market their products and the entire experience around them? The first thing I want to say, and I feel really impassioned about this, you don't have to be a great creative mind to be a great aesthet, right? So let's take the quintessential example of a Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs never went to design school or art school. He wasn't even that well schooled in things like the history of art. There are people who get their PhD in that and they understand the history, the craft in a way that 
would put him to shame. Steve Jobs was a businessman through and through and a great salesman to boot. But the one thing I will give him extraordinarily high marks for is taste. So to have high aesthetic intelligence is not to be a creative. It's not to be a craftsman or an artist, but the, the real criteria for aesthetic intelligence is just a, a deep knowledge and grasp of what feels and looks good to you and how to convey it or communicate it to others such that they can work toward your vision. If you take the Apple example, again, he was not born or raised in the art department. He had a very clear sense of where he got comfort and where he got energy aesthetically. There's a lot of work that I've done around studying how tastes are shaped. I guarantee you that for the tens of thousands of people who worked in his product design departments and advertising departments, that they didn't all share his exact mid-century California, very sleek and minimalistic design sensibility, but they knew how to deliver it because he was so clear and he was so deft at communicating that. So the first step in developing one's own aesthetic intelligence is not to take an art class or to immerse yourself in other people's designs. It's really more of a soul searching. It's to understand what fundamentally feels and looks good to you, why, and then how you can deliver it in your own immediate space, and then ultimately transfer that and apply that to your product, to your uh, campaigns, to your retail store, to your office space, to your customer presentations, to your brand ID, to all the elements that are communicating, not what you think looks good, but what you believe. Aesthetics is a symbol of your belief system. And people often say when they're choosing a partner to work with or a company to join as an employee, that they are focusing on culture and culture is very important. And it's where people often go wrong. They have the skills, but they don't have the fit with the culture. My problem or, or challenge with culture is I don't know how to measure it. It's so amorphous. I have a vague feeling when I walk into somebody's environment, but I don't have a vague feeling when I look at the aesthetic symbols of that space. And there's no right or wrong, but there is a right or wrong fit. And so I tell people the first step in developing aesthetic intelligence is to develop more and more awareness of what feels and looks good to you. Where do you get your energy? Where do you get your contentment? Where do you get your stimulation from? And, and that is so individualized. I say to people, start with yourself and then move into the company realm and then see how you can apply it and also see how you can make decisions about what kind of company you should and shouldn't work for based on the values that are conveyed through their own aesthetics. So many nuggets in this. Many of the digital products that we're developing are being built around specific fandoms, such as athletics and sports, gaming, fashion and art. And I'm noticing that buyers in those categories often refer to themselves as collectors, not just consumers. And, and it's true. Everyone collects something. It's a personal activity. It means something to mm -hmm. us individually. It's almost always nostalgic. 
And our desire to customize will persist as the internet continues to evolve. The only disadvantage is that you can't touch digital products. So visual communication becomes even more important. From your vantage point, what will happen to aesthetic intelligence as we have to apply it to objects that exist uh, in the eye of the beholder? For every hour that we spend looking at pixelated images, it's an hour that our fundamental human senses are understimulated. Human nature doesn't change that quickly. We adapt functionally as we have to. If you look at the number of adaptations that have happened just in this last year under COVID, it's extraordinary. But that's not human nature that's adapted behavior. I guarantee you this, the minute that it feels safe to go out and we are back to the world as we once knew it, there will be such an embrace of offline experience, of going in stores, trying on clothes, being with people, celebrating, not online in a Zoom setting, but actually in a space where we're drinking and we're eating. I think we're going to see it in fashion choices, not to say we're going to go back to five-inch Louboutins. Discomfort is never a good thing, but nor is this sort of shabby athleisure gray sweats way of living. Human nature wants to decorate. It wants to enjoy community. It wants to connect with people in more profound ways. And it's been a very oppressive period that we've just come through. So to answer your question, we'll continue to use digital for all the benefits it offers, for speed, for the efficiency, for the ease of interaction, for the transparency. All that is great but that doesn't satisfy much more profound human instinct. And we are gonna complement that by a more extreme, very traditional ways of gathering and connecting and having much richer aesthetic experiences than we even knew before. If I just take one very mundane example, the obsession that people have with cooking, whether they're doing the cooking or watching other people doing the cooking or going to restaurants where they can sample other people's cooking. The fastest growth in food has been very spicy food, very exotic ethnic foods. This is how we're looking for discovery and for adventure. We're looking to stimulate senses in a way that I think is getting harder and harder to do in the normal frame of living. So digital serves a very important purpose but we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that it can be all important and all of a sudden, all facets of who we are aesthetically will be satisfied. I, I would say the same thing I just said about cooking and our, our gustatory reactions to gardening. Why do people who never took an interest in having green around all of a sudden develop these late in life occupations? And I think some of that is just, we're working with our hands. I see it on the runway shows there's more and more textiles that are being shown, even in home decor. There's a lot of layering, a lot of skins, a lot of different textures of woods and marbles and trying to recreate nature. These are all reactions, in my mind, to the preponderance of time we spend understimulating our senses through this digital sphere. It's so exciting to 
look forward to the time when everything will be opened up again. It almost feels like there's a pendulum swinging. We had to very drastically move over to the digital world and then rush to the opposite side of being in the world and just enjoying the atmosphere of being together in the physical place. All of the learnings that you shared with us today, do you have any stories of accidents, mistakes, or just unexpected surprises that you discovered uh, along the way that have influenced your work? Mm. Well, everything is a surprise, right? I feel like I'm still going through uh, this experiment that we call life and picking up new observations. I, I wrote the book, Aesthetic Intelligence, and started teaching it five years before COVID. And I feel like the things I was talking about and fighting for and advocating for in 2018, 2019 are even more relevant now than they were then what has happened this last year in terms of how it's reframed our sense of community, our questioning of how we live and who we bring in and of what we miss, even our awareness of, of all those things we took for granted before. I think that this acute need to enjoy life for all the beauty that it offers is so fundamental. My biggest fear when I wrote the book originally was that it would be seen as a take on luxury marketing that is really for people who uh, are lucky enough to be able to buy into the likes of a Christian Dior or a Bottega Veneta, but even these most primitive tribes in sub-Saharan Africa still wear beads. This quest to surround yourself with beauty and with things that excite you is, is human. And what's missing in business is not this elevated aesthetics that we've now come to call luxury. What's missing in beauty is the human touch. And I think businesses that can figure out how to work in a world fraught with big data and with automation and mechanization, and at the same time, still be in touch with their customers' humanity. Those are going to be the real winners. To answer your question, what surprises me? That for all the talk that I'm giving around how important humanity in business is, whether you think of it as a sustainability or a social responsibility, most businesses have become so dispassionate and so divorced from that human at the end of the supply chain. That's what surprises me. The businesses that get that, they're going to be clear-cut winners. So companies do underestimate aesthetics in a big way, but they are still looking for something that's missing. And then the consultant or strategist that tells them it's all about the aesthetics, it's not normally the, the favorite person in the boardroom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so why is that and how to overcome that? Well, so I think for a long time, as long as companies could do well by growing, market share by moving quicker than their competitors, that they had a story to tell and they were rewarded for that. I think we've kind of come to the end of the road where that's good enough because there'll be someone else who's faster and cheaper and someone else who's a little more innovative. So if that doesn't serve you well as a CEO to simply have a good background in engineering or in economics or finance or accounting, you need something else. What is that something else? And I do think there's a level of humility that I haven't seen earlier in my career that I see today among senior executives. They know there's something else they need to be doing beyond what the obvious traditional measures were. It drives me crazy when CEOs and 
other sea level people feel that they can outsource issues or, or opportunities around taste and aesthetics to some agency. The agency should be hired to execute. They have skills around execution that you don't need to bring in house. But the agency should not be your decision maker when it comes to how you want your products, your experiences, your messages to be felt. And the CEO must own that. There's no running away from that. Execution is different. Going back to that example I talked about earlier, Steve Jobs wasn't sitting there developing fonts or deciding what materials to be using in the next generation of a Mac. He had scores of people to work on the you know industrial elements and the things that required specialization. But he certainly knew how it should feel to him. And he wasn't going to let some third party just come in and give him a big pitch deck on what the look and the feel should represent. So to your question, I think the first step is one of ownership. I think the decision on aesthetics among those who will fare well has to sit in the boardroom with the senior executives. The other point I'll make, because I don't think it gets made nearly enough, is I would love to see in my lifetime people who are working on the creative expression and the aesthetic of a business be paid commensurate with what financiers and operators are being paid. I think in some ways they're delivering more lasting value. So that's another disconnect that ought to be closed. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Anyone in the audience who has any questions for Pauline, any comments, feel free to raise your hand and we'll bring you up. I have one last question for you, Pauline. So in the current landscape, what is inspiring you? A lot. And let me just say, in history, there have never been more creative times than coming out of very distressing ones. There's a lot of reasons for that. It creates new dynamics in a marketplace. It opens up new ways of thinking. I think we're actually going to enter into this proliferation of creativity and experimentation, unlike in other periods of, of history. The first thing that excites me is just the enjoyment that people will feel doing things that they always thought were just normal things. This can be taken away very quickly. The right to meet a friend at a bar for an hour and then maybe hop from there to some other gathering can be taken away. When you're in good health and you have the means to enjoy your life, like really shame on you if you're not enjoying it. I think that there'll be a real rejoicing. On the art scene, on the creative scene, it's interesting. I come from the world of retail, high-end retail. And for a long time, I was getting very jaded because fashion was becoming very uninspired. And now I feel for the first time in a long time that maybe because there have been a lot of store closings, because the threat of digital has forced a level of originality offline that I didn't see for a couple of years, I feel like when I go into stores, particularly in second and third tier cities, not so much yet in places like New York, that there's a sense of excitement about merchandising again and about creating space that people want to be in. So I'm pretty optimistic about what's going to come, especially on the creative front. Amazing. Thank you so much. Corey, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. 
I definitely see a lot of us really getting back out after the whole pandemic is over. I know it feels like it's over in some cities, but especially mm-hmm. where I'm at, it's not over yet. Pauline, can you talk more about how we can create different experiences online? Oh, yeah, sure. The first thing I'll say, the, the most exciting online propositions that I can see right now are complemented by offline opportunities, which doesn't mean you have to be a store. doesn't mean that if you're Warby Parker, you've got to now have this many bricks and mortar stores to complement that. That's a traditional way of thinking. But let's just take an example, Veuve Clicquot, which I was affiliated with because it's one of the LVMH brands. So Veuve Clicquot is the number one champagne brand in the U.S. And it's a very difficult business to market, not just champagne, but all wines and spirits. We hear of the success stories, you know, some hot tequila brand that gets bought by Diageo, but most of them remain hidden and silent and barely economic. And the reason for that is that there's two ways that you can discover a new brand. One is in a restaurant and you happen to stumble onto something that's new that you hadn't heard of. But for the most part, most restaurants and clubs are still going with the big guys. Or you're wandering into a wine store and you're looking down the aisle and something catches your attention. And it's very hard to catch your attention because every bottle basically looks the same. And in this country, if you're a winemaker like a Veuve Clicquot, you're not even allowed to sell directly to a consumer. It's just a regulatory issue. So you have to sell through distributors who sell through retailers. So I take a brand like Veuve Clicquot, which has a great heritage in France. It was started in 1805. And back in 1805, women could not run a business. Veuve is a a French word for widow. And the only reason that she was able to take over the winery is she was widowed. And that was an exception to the law that gave her the right. And the team at Veuve Clicquot are always thinking about how can we tell our story? How can we bring the differences of a Veuve Clicquot, differences versus Dom Perignon or Moet Hennessy, or Moet Chandon, and they create this polo event. It used to just be in New York, in Liberty State Park, and now they do a second one in Hollywood. What, what's interesting about those events is they're offline events. They're not sponsored by Veuve Clicquot. They're hosted by Veuve Clicquot. It's an exquisite event. It's beautifully staged. It's fun. It's in a time of year where you cannot take a bad picture. It's generally outside. There are a few hundred people who go every year, twice a year, but they get 6 billion hits on Instagram and other social media. And the reason I'm bringing this up is they've designed those offline events in ways that are so exciting, sensorially, aesthetically, that not only do they get the the marketing effect online in the form of all the posts and all the celebrity shots, but the event actually pays for itself because people buy tickets. It's that good an event. So to go back to your question, Corey, I think the important point for online players is to use the online as an amplifier for what you're doing, for the story you're telling, for the things you're selling. But don't think that if you just stick with this two-dimensional model that you're going to be able to break through the clutter. The real excitement is going to be coming from offline experiences that are so exciting, whether it's in a store or in the case of Veuve Clicquot in their various events, that you get extraordinary online replay. I would tell people to think of their experience like a theater, right? I saw Hamilton many times on Broadway and I loved it every time. 
And then I saw it on television and I was a bit ho-hum. And, and I think most people had a similar reaction. And it wasn't because it's not a great story. It was because the television didn't ignite something different than what we experienced in the theater. So how you can take snippets of your offline theater and have that come alive and create an exciting amplification through online as opposed to a pure storytelling online. That would be my overriding advice to people. That's a great way to put it. A lot of people who want to get a ton of followers online say like, how do I grow and gain a bunch of followers? Well, if you look at most people who have, you know, millions of followers online, it's because they've been doing cool stuff offline, right? Right. I think we're going to move past that. If you think of online world as a baseball game, and I'm not at all a baseball fan, but it was the first inning, the second inning, the third inning. We're probably in the third inning. So the first inning was just anyone who posted got some attention. And the second inning had to be a beautiful shot and it could be phony, but it still should be compelling. Now we're sort of past that where if it's just phony and it doesn't match this offline richness, then it feels flat. And we're probably going to even move further away from that. I, I would be very skittish about things like reality TV, anything that is supposed to be real, but we know is really staged. What makes a great movie? Well, a great movie starts with a great script. And a great script doesn't come through some AI analysis. A great story is a great story, period. I don't care if you're online only. Start with a great story and then start to find ways to layer that uh, into the online. But don't start with pixelated strategy that is online first. Thank you so much for your question, Corey. Really appreciate you uh, digging into the psyche of how we currently consume our digital experiences and where they can go next. Marcella, welcome up. Thank you. I actually wanted to follow up on what Corey was saying. I was curious from Pauline's perspective, if there was any specific differences from men and women in terms of how we react to aesthetic intelligence. I, I would love more insights on that. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. The, the first thing I'd say is that there are differences for each individual, whether you're a New Yorker or a Midwesterner, there are differences between different ethnicities and some of it's cultural and some of it is more personal. I'm doing a rather large project with Ford Motor uh, as an example, and, and this is not digital per se, but Ford Motor is very underpenetrated in appealing to women car buyers. And yet that is the fastest growing segment of new car buyers. And that never was the case historically. Making a car that appeals to women is not about taking your Bronco and painting it pink, right? It's much more profound. It's really about women at different stages in life going through different life needs. And your mood state is what is most important to me. If, if I'm buying a car tomorrow, I'm not buying a car because I'm a woman or because I live in New York. I'm buying a car because these are my needs. Are there different mood states between men and women? Yeah. For some categories, I think it's more pronounced than others. When it comes to cars, men are more prone to look at it as a definition of their power. There's a sort of a competitive element that doesn't speak to women. When it comes to online, I go back to the point I made with Corey earlier. I think a great story is a great story. I think if people identify with what that mood is, they will respond. There are many ways 
through a digital frame that you can convey an emotional message. I don't think that the product categories are a bigger delineator between male, female than the quest for human experience. Thank you so much for your question, Marcella. Andrew, you're up next. I would like to ask Pauline if your book is only available in English, right? I'm living in Italy, so my main uh, language is Italian. It is not only available in English, but I don't believe there's an Italian version. There's two nations that I always hold up as the highest standard of aesthetic intelligence. It's Japanese and Italian. They're different, but they both are incredibly aesthetic in how they approach product experience design. I have great respect for you Italians. I will read it anyway, even if it's in English, but it will take some time, but I will read it because it's really interesting for me. I don't know if you have have ever read a, a book by Byung-Chul Han, Saving Beauty, where he approaches the topic on how the Polishness is becoming the main future, uh, even in the digital. I would like to know from your point of view about the Polishness in uh, the digital uh, format, if you have any opinion on, on this aspect? So I think beauty is very flat in digital. If you think about even visual, which is the best sense that the digital can tap into, the best photographic representation online will pale next to what I could see. If I was sitting at the bottom of the Italian Alps, it wouldn't compare. And so visually, Online is quite good, but not as good as offline. Auditorially, if I think about the best sound system that my computer might have, it won't be as good as listening to live music in a concert hall. It's good. In fact, it can be great, but it won't be nearly as rich as in person. What online does do really well is it stimulates our imagination and we envision the Italian Alps or the music we're listening to. But real beauty requires still an offline compliment. Boom, mic drop, Pauline. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you everybody for joining today. Pauline, it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, I could just write a book about your quotes. So great. <laughs> well, thank you, Evelyn and Ara. You have uh, honored me enormously by inviting me. I'm coming out with a online learning school. So for people who are interested, if you go to aestheticintelligence.com, you can sign up and it will be ready for early students as of June 1st. Mark your calendars. This is such a great opportunity to go beyond the book and learn more about aesthetic intelligence from you, Pauline. Thank you for all of the insights you shared with us today. And we're really looking forward to the launch of your platform. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to all the listeners. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to this Digital Fashion and Art Club episode with Pauline Brown. We host weekly shows about the evolution of virtual creative economy with leading professionals and metaverse creators. If you enjoyed this, follow the Digital Fashion and Art Club on Clubhouse and join us for live conversations with speakers on Wednesdays at 5 p.m. and Saturdays at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thank you again for tuning in and we'll see you next week. Thank you.